Would you uh, open your Bibles now to 1 Thessalonians? 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, and our reading this morning will be verses 6 through 13. I want you to stand now for the hearing of the holy, inspired, infallible, and inerrant word of the living God. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father Himself and Jesus Christ our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that He may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints. You may be seated. One of those verses which uh, we refer to so regularly here in this congregation, I'm sure you're aware of and needs no introduction to you, is um, Ephesians 4.11 and following. Of course, uh, you're aware that it's one of the most systematic formulations in all of Scripture about what the Christian ministry is and what it's for. We're mindful this morning what stands behind that great statement of ministry is, is the specter of the sovereign mediatorial King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul had just spoken of Him as the one who has ascended into heaven and received gifts and He poured them out on men. And the practical application of that was the institution of the ministry. So we read in verse 11 of the sovereign gifting of Christ to men as He gives unto the church some apostles and some prophets and some pastors and some teachers. This, of course, is the foundation of the Christian ministry, the, the great outpouring of this gift of grace upon His church in the form of word gifts. And then the next verse goes on to explain the role of this ministry. And that role of this ministry is stated adequately by the Apostle Paul as for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, and for the building up of the body of Christ. 
And if you're reading the King James Version this morning, you have the accurate translation because it sees in each one of those prepositional phrases the purpose of this distribution of words gift and the purpose of ministry. It's for the perfecting of the saints and for the work of ministry and for the building up of the body of Christ. Each clause expounds upon the purpose of the ministry. And then in verse 13, you have the great aim of the ministry. And it's stated so succinctly by the Apostle Paul, it's so that the church would grow into a mature man to the measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ. The reason why Jesus Christ has put a ministry in His church and tasked it with certain roles and responsibility is so that all of God's people would grow up into maturity. And He uses this metaphor of biological growth into adulthood. That's the great aim of the ministry, that we would grow up unto Christ and we would be mature in Christ. And what I find so important about that systematic formulation of the ministry that Paul sketches and outlines there is that that very same principle of ministry and understanding of ministry was at work from the beginning in the Apostle Paul's church planting and ministry work. You see, what we find here in our text this morning is that at least ten years before the Apostle ever formulated the nature of ministry as he did in Ephesians 4, you can see obvious marks of it being at play right here in our text. Because as you look down now at verse 10, you can see the relationship between ministry and maturity. As the Apostle reports about his prayer, saying that he earnestly sought that the Lord would enable him to see their face. Obviously, it's a shorthand way of the Apostle saying he wants to come and minister the Word to them. But notice the aim of it all. It's that we may complete what is lacking in your faith. There you have the connection between ministry and its aim. It's unto this maturity and this increasing. But he doesn't leave it there. As you walk through the text, you find another connection between ministry and maturity in verse 12. As he is praying, once again, most earnestly, that the church would abound in love for one another. And so we have another indication here of the kind of increase in grace that he is seeking for in the congregation, that there would be a maturing in love. And then finally, you see a third connection relationship between ministry and its aim in verse 13, as the Apostle Paul prays that God would establish their hearts without blame in holiness before the Lord. So as we piece all of this together, what we see is a picture of the kind of increase that God wants for His church. And that is an increase in faith, and an increase in love, and an increase in holiness. This is his aim. An aiming at increasing. An aiming at increasing. And if that's Paul's will for the church in Thessalonica, we can be sure this morning that's Paul's and the Lord's will for us. Aiming 
at increasing. And so we're going to expound that theme of this increase in spiritual maturity under three points, increasing in faith, increasing in love, and increasing in holiness. So let's break that apart now. We have the increase in faith. And it's going to take, I think, maybe ten minutes or so, okay? We need to do some backfill here before we get into the main elements of the text where he expounds upon this theme of increase. So let's make sure we're focusing here because what the apostle is doing is sort of laying a foundation, if you will, for the rest of what he is going to say. And and that is tied um, here to the context, which is Timothy's report to Paul. Now, you can see that here in verse 6 as he says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and of love. There's your connection to context. We know the timing in which Paul expounds upon this theme of increasing in maturity. It's following upon the heels of Timothy's return. Now, you'll remember we've expounded upon this most recently. As we said, the apostle was overflowing with emotion in the prior text because of the time and the separation, the distance that has occurred since he was violently thrown out of Thessalonica. And he had this deep desire to know whether they were persevering in faith. And so the Word of God tells us when he could take it no longer... He sent Timothy. And remember we said it was at great pains to himself because it meant that he would be left alone to minister. He would be at the tip of the spear of the advancement of the kingdom of God all by himself. And the pain to the apostle is that on every step prior to that, before he sent Timothy away, he was violently persecuted everywhere he went. Well, here he was by himself in Athens, a a city hostile to the gospel as well. And he sent Timothy. And so what I want us to notice here is the urgency with which he addresses the church, those words, but now just leap off the page. Because those words give us a sense that the apostle is putting pen to paper when the report has just moved from Timothy's lips to Paul's ears. He's just received the report. He's thrilled by everything that he's heard. And so with that report hot off of the presses, the apostle Paul sits down and he puts pen to paper. And he's received a great note, a great report. I would have you note here these words in verse 6. He brought us good news. And there's a little bit of electricity in that word good news. It seems sort of bland and, and savorless in English. But the word here is gospel. This is the only time in biblical Greek where this term is used to refer to good news. Typically, it is translated gospel. It has a reference to Christ and the preaching of the gospel. But I want us to sense here just how electrified the apostle is based upon this report. To him, it felt like gospel that he was receiving from Timothy. And the reason that's the case is because they are standing firm in Christ. Look at the content of the report in verse 6. He brought us good news of your faith 
and of your love. Now that's going to be unfolded here. The love that he speaks of, I think, is what we're going to read in the rest of verse 6. And the faith is what we're going to read of and what follows in verses 7 through 9. So what is this love that he is thinking of here? And that love that he is thinking of that is so vibrant in the hearts of the Thessalonians is contained in the report here how you are always thinking kindly of us and longing to see us. The Apostle is absolutely thrilled and delighted by the love of the Thessalonians for him. Because it seems that it was lurking in the back of his mind that these people in Thessalonica just might have it out for him. After all, it was on account of him, humanly speaking, having brought the gospel to them, having proclaimed Christ to them, having brought them unto the Savior, that their life is miserable. You see, meeting Jesus meant meeting affliction. And so the apostle seems to have this uh, negative, doubting thought lurking in his mind that they just might despise him. After all, he not only led them into chaos by leading them to Christ, he never came back. But here the Apostle is overjoyed. He says, it's not just that you think of us. It's that you think kindly of us. And it's not just that you think kindly of us. You are constantly longing to see us. It's an emphatic form. It is full of strength. They have a deep desire to see the Apostle and to be ministered to him by him again. And so now he's finished his report in verse 6, and he transitions to his own estimation here. And he says in verse 7, For this reason, brethren, in all of our distress and affliction, we are comforted. You see, that's the outcome of the report to him. Because of this report, the Apostle Paul says, In our distress, we feel deep comfort. And maybe we could think about how that gospel news of what's happening in Thessalonica met him in that particular circumstance. We know from our studies in the book of Acts that he was in Corinth at this time. And you remember that things got so heated and so desperate and so bad and anxiety riddled in Corinth that the Lord himself came to Paul in the vision there. And he said, I want you to go forward preaching manfully in this city because I have many people here. The opposition from the Jews and his opponents in Corinth was so vibrant and so intense that it seems that he was thinking about withdrawing from the city itself. And yet the Lord came alongside him and encouraged him. And it was in that same season of difficulty and anxiety due to ministry that this message came and it consoled his heart. And what it did was confirm to Paul that it was worth it. All of this was worth it. Bringing people to Jesus was worth it. Leading people unto the Savior and experience the outcome, the result of it, which is personal difficulty for self, it was worth it. Because the Lord had His hand on His people. The Lord was preserving his work. And so he is delighted. He's elated, as you can see here in verse 7. He's saying here basically, I reached for every word in the dictionary and I still can't find one yet. 
that expresses my thanks. Now look at the color that he gives it in verse 8. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. It's a conditional statement. It sounds like there may be a tinge of uncertainty when there really isn't. The apostle can tell that these are the kinds of people who are persevering. That's what's meant by this word, stand firm. It's, it's the typical term that Paul uses in his New Testament letters to speak the exhortation to continue in Christ. And he says, our pastoral vigor is fueled by your firmness and your constancy in the faith in the Lord. And so he speaks of the joy. All of that, people of God, is the backdrop, the context, the the thing that we said we needed to backfill to begin to appreciate this great theme the Apostle develops here about aiming at increasing Because what he's just described here is a people who are alive with faith. I told you I borrowed this from a great radio preacher of old, but it's something that has never left my understanding. I think I heard him preach the sermon 30 years ago. And he said, congregation, I can't wait to study this book of the Thessalonians with you because this is the story of infectious Christianity. But I've always loved the Thessalonians since then. Because if there was ever a book which was alive with the idea that the people of God are flourishing in the midst of their afflictions, it's the Thessalonians. Firmness, love of Christ, overflowing with the tokens of divine mercy. All the while they are experiencing the deepest and most severe stresses of life. If you want encouragement in the Lord, people of God, this morning, as we stand in a moment of tremendous uncertainty and anxiety, I want you to focus on what the Lord does for His people. It's terrifying to watch the images play out on our screens and to see the panic, the anxiety, the distrust the public upheaval that we're watching happen right before our eyes. This is not you. This is not the believer. That is not the indicative fruit that flows from Christ. These Thessalonians are proof of that. When the Lord redeems His people, He fills them with His grace and makes them strong. He makes them firm. He makes them unwavering. He grants them what they stand in need of. And in this moment, we are not to be like the world. You have every reason this morning to know that because God is with us in the Lord Jesus Christ and He indwells us by His Spirit, that there is strength for us to persevere and remain constant in our faith and to overflow with love to our neighbors. So with that backdrop before us, people of God, let's come into the content of this exposition of the aim at increase. And we see it here in the call to increasing in faith. It's a prayer report as the apostle tells the church how he's praying for them. But you can see it in verse 10 for yourself. As we night and day keep praying most earnestly, that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. 
I love the way he testifies to his prayer life. It was night and day. It was night and day. And I don't take that to mean that the apostle is somehow suggesting that he never fell asleep. I think what it means is that at intervals and with consistency and regularity, uh, he prayed for the church. And he prayed, not just a cool, calm, collected prayer, but it feels like he was calling down heaven's mercies upon them because the, the language here is earnest. He prayed most earnestly. He prayed with the depths of feeling in his soul for the people of God and with faith knowing that the Lord is the one that provides. But I love how one commentator described this, and maybe you'll tuck this away for yourself. He says, praying earnestly means to pray like a beggar. Praying earnestly means to pray like a beggar. I hope you feel that way when you pray. Pray like a beggar. Pray like somebody who knows that everything that you need and every resource is in the Heavenly Father. But with an assurance that when you ask for what you do, you have this great promise that God will hear you. That's how Paul prayed. You know what he prayed? He said, I want to see you to your face. And that means he wanted to come and minister to them. And here's what he wanted to do for them. Complete what is lacking in their faith. You see, that word uh, lacking speaks of a deficiency or an inadequacy. And that, that word kind of leaps off the page at it, doesn't us, you know? We've just described a, a congregation that seems to be full of the greatest vibrancy of faith we can think of. And yet to that congregation, he says, I need to come minister to you because you are deficient. Your faith is inadequate. It's incomplete. And as you stop and think about that, you say, well, of course. You've been believers for a year. But what remarkable progress they have made. And yet, he says, I've got to do something. I have to come to reinforce you. That's the connection to us this morning, people of God. What the Apostle expresses as a ministry desire and aim for the people of God in Thessalonica is his own expression and aim to us. We all need this. We're all inadequate. We're all deficient. We all need greater growth. Listen now to how John Calvin puts it. From this we infer that those who far surpass others are still far distant from the goal. He says, think of the the greatest, most pious, godly, devoted, faith-filled man or woman. They're distant. They're far from the goal. And so, he says, whatever progress we have made, let us always keep in view our deficiencies. Do you think that way of yourself? Do you think that way of yourself? I have deficiencies. I'm inadequate. The goal which I'm aiming at is far off in the distance. 
You see, it's so important for us to always maintain this sense of humility about ourselves, to always understand we're nowhere near where we should be. Because it's only the person that understands that they are a beggar in need of the help and the strength and the resources of the Heavenly Father. It's only that person who will grow. The Apostle Paul, as much as he loved these people and as much as he was impressed with them and saw them as having experienced tremendous growth, still says this is what they need and if they needed it, we need it. We need greater conviction. We need more nurturing. We need more knowledge of the Scriptures. We need more illumination of the Word of God so that we see the connection between the principle and the doctrine and its application to life. We need more encouragement. We need more faith to persevere. We need more firmness and more constancy and more zeal. And the way you get that is through the connection the Apostle Paul draws here. See you to the face that you may grow. The way we receive this connection is the ministry of the Word. I remind you this morning, as we think in connection to that text that we reached for in our introduction, Ephesians 4, is this is the theology of ministry that Christ has instituted in His church. That the way we grow up unto this fullness of the stature of Christ is the very ministry He has appointed in the church. And that ministry does not contain magic. We do not believe that there's some deposit of grace communicated to the ministry where they just touch you or or speak something over you or prescribe some ritual to perform. That if it's all done that way, somehow you'll grow. No, that's not how we do it. The way that the ministry is instituted for the purpose of securing the aim is that the ministry is a servant of the Word. And it's as the ministry serves the church with the Word that we grow into the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. You know, there's a, there's a verse that has this same word here that we have in our text, this uh, completing. Go ahead and turn there. I, I wasn't going to ask you to, but it's worth it because this is one of those texts which we love as believers. It's 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. 2 Timothy 16 and 17, because it's that great doctrinal touchstone for the doctrine of Scripture. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. We love that verse because it tells us what the Word of God is. It's like nothing else that we come into contact with. It is the inspired Word of the living God. And because of it, the Apostle says here, it's adequate. It can give us everything that we need. You see, the Apostle was talking about them being incomplete and deficient. And here the Apostle says, this word is fully competent and sufficient. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And if he had never gone into verse 17, we would know what this word can do. But you know what? He does go on to verse 17. And one of those great statements of Scripture that I hope you take home and savor with you. It's so that the man of God may be adequate, 
equipped for every good work. This uh, word here shares the same root as that word of complete over here in 1 Thessalonians 3. So I want you to understand this morning how it is that by the apostle coming to see them in faith, that they will be completed and the, the way that works and, and the mechanism that's in place is that the apostle come and serves them with the word. That's how they'll become complete. Like you are this morning. You're being served with the word. We thought about what we would do today. I saw it on the horizon. I called the school district several times wanting to know. In the meantime, I read all kinds of announcements of other churches closing their doors today. And I begged with the school district to leave the doors open for us. Because I knew that what was needed in the midst of this is for all of us to be served with the Word. Because the way that your faith has firmness and constancy and strength and vigor and vitality is being served with the Word. And we need it regularly. I love what Calvin says here. He says it doesn't happen in the course of a single day or month. It's this simple thing that you're doing right now. Reading about an apostle's prayer for a congregation across the world from you and across time. And yet by serving you with this word, the apostle says, this is how you will have constancy, assurance, vitality, conviction. I pray that for you this morning. I prayed it intensely for you last week because I know this is a season for all of us to have fear, to be gripped with anxiety and see what the world is doing. We're not drawn into that this morning, people of God, because what you're hearing is Christ speaking to your ears this day, saying there is firmness of faith as the Word is expounded. We are to increase in faith and the rest of the path of maturing is set out here, second of all, an increasing in love. And I want you to look at verse 11 and just appreciate for a moment this uh, prayer or address here that begins in verse 11 as the Apostle says, Now may our God and Father Himself and Jesus our Lord. You know what, people of God? There is something in this text which has never been uttered in Scripture up to this point. There's good arguments to be made that perhaps Galatians was written before this book, and I think the book of James was written before this book. But that's it. This is one of the earliest letters in the New Testament. And there's something in it that you don't find in Scripture prior to this. And that is praying to Jesus. Remember how Jesus taught His disciples to pray? Our Father. Well, Paul prays to the Father here, as he says it explicitly now, may our God and Father Himself. Well, that's a powerful intensive. But then he has the conjunction and. 
the conjunction and Jesus our Lord. So what we have here are twin objects of prayer. He is crying out to God the Father and Jesus our Lord. And we're going to bring that back in to our admonition here in a moment. But for now, we tuck it away to see we have something powerful and unique and wonderful here. Because what we're learning is that God in heaven hears and supplies us with grace through Jesus Christ, who shares with him power and divinity and glory. But now watch the request unfold here. He asked God to direct him back to Thessalonica, and that's not a throwaway line. Because you'll remember what he said back in verse 18 of chapter 2. We wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and what? Satan hindered us. He had every intention of the world. His prayers were unto this, and yet it happened again and again. Once and more, he says. And so now he says, I'm sharing with you my heart for you as I tell you what I have been praying to God and the Father and the Lord Jesus for, is that He would direct us. He knew they needed the ministry of the Word. But look at the rest of it. Now we come into the content of it here. And I want you to know here, people of God, that what the Apostle does here in the Greek is he puts you... At the very front, you, the church. And he says, you, may you be caused to increase and abound in love. So here's the the second thing that he is aiming at with ministry in terms of maturity. Aiming that they would grow in love. And he says here that they would love uh, one another. And he prays that they would uh, love Everyone else, that is their neighbor, the people around them, for all people. I got to thinking about this and I said, isn't this one of the most obvious Christian duties in the Word of God? When Jesus said that He was summarizing the whole Old Testament law and the prophets, at least in part, He says that you would love your neighbor as yourself. The Apostle spotlights the duty and obligation in Romans 13, 8, saying, Oh, no one anything but to love them. Uh, 2 Peter 1.7, as he strings a whole set of Christian virtues together, said, to all of this, he says, you add love. The Apostle John, 1 John 4.7, beloved, let us love one another. This is the great Christian duty. But how about this staggering statement by the Apostle? 1 Corinthians 13. If I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. I wonder if we underestimate the duty, the absolute necessity of this virtue. Here the Apostle Paul appeals to the Lord on their behalf, and says, I want you to direct my paths to them so that as I minister the word to them, they may grow in love. Now that's an unwavering duty, it's an unyielding duty, it's a constant duty, it's one that is to be unfailing in our behalf, but it's something we can't do. And the proof of that is the very fact that the Apostle Paul prays for it. He says, may the Lord cause you to increase and abound 
in love. You see, He makes us dependent upon the grace of God to fulfill the law of God. As He reaches back now to that reference to Jesus our Lord, He says, may Jesus give this to you. May Jesus impress your hearts of the wonder of His unfailing love. May Jesus impress upon the hearts the joy and the grace and the wonder of His cross. May Jesus reach behind that cross back to the eternal counsels of God and the determination of the Father who for the very love of the world gave His Son. That's what He is seeking for, is that Jesus Christ would so impress upon us by His precept and by His example what love is. That our hearts may increase in it and abound in it and grow in it and overflow with it. We can't do it without Christ. This is a profoundly important duty, but we can't do it without Jesus. And so he says, I pray for it. I pray for it. It reminds me this morning of that great structure of the wonderful Reformation document, the Heidelberg Catechism. And you know its outline. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. And gratitude's all about the duty part in the catechism, if you'll remember its structure and unfolding. But one of the things that the catechism excels in is as it holds before us the duty and the obligation, it never severs it from grace. In fact, it makes it very clear repeatedly that the gratitude, the obedience, is inseparably connected with Christ. People of God, if you would abound in, in love. You must be full of Christ. You must seek Christ. You must pray that Christ would strengthen you to increase and abound. And that's why we always need to be keeping the gospel upon our thoughts. We always need to be Christ-centered and cross-centered and, and grace-centered. And the way that you do that, people of God, is constantly reminding yourself of your sin. There's no way to be Christ-centered without being very persuaded and assured of your own sins and failings. Because it's only the penitent person that runs and clings to the cross of Christ. If you don't know your sins, you don't know the gospel. I hope we're persuaded this morning that the steps that unfold towards that goal of maturity travel through the knowledge of our sins and disobedience and our desperate need for Christ every day. It's the only way you can live in the gospel hope of Christ, the knowledge of your sin. And so he prays that they might increase in that. And finally, he leads us to a third aim here of gospel ministry, and it's increase in holiness. You see it in verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father. Verse 13 is a continuation 
of the prayer of verse 12. And uh, it's a contemplated result. It's, so it's, a, it's another aspect or component to this great pattern of aiming at increasing. We've had the call to increase in faith and the call to increase in love. And now we have the call to increase in holiness. And here's the thing. He says, may God Himself establish you. And then He reaches for your heart. He reaches for your heart. He says, may He establish your hearts without blame in holiness. You see, what God would have is a total consecration which is inside out. And so He reaches for the heart. Not just um, a conformity and externals of our life, but something that flows out of the deepest recesses of the human person. That's why we need the Word of God. We constantly need the Word of God spoken into our ears because it's that Word alone which is able to penetrate and pierce and dig into the depths of the human person, as the preacher says in Hebrews 4. Only the Word is able to get past the ears and sink like an arrow into the soul. And that's why the ministry of the Word was needed. So that as they sat under it and were served by the Word in generous portions, that God would do His sanctifying work. You see, we have holiness. It's not that we're absent of it. We have real holiness when we are united to the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a real positional holiness in Christ. We are entirely consecrated unto Him by faith and through our union with the Lord Jesus and through the dwelling of the Holy Spirit within us. But what the Apostle Paul is saying here is there must be yet an increase. There must be yet an increase. Now that increase would come as he brought the word to them, as the Lord directed his paths to them, as he ministered the word, and as the Spirit of God took that word and brought it home into their hearts with much conviction and power. God would sanctify them through and through. And just uh, so that you can get some sense of how desperately the Apostle Paul was anxious for them to have this, you might just flip a page over and, uh, and notice here that this is what he commands yet again in verse 23 of chapter 5. May the God of peace <clears throat> sanctify you through and through. That's the same thing he's praying for here. A heart consecration to the Lord. Holiness of heart, holiness of conduct, holiness of mind, holiness of life. John uh, puts it like this, and I think it's one of the great statements uh, in Scripture about it because of the way it connects it to Christ. But 1 John 3, 3, purify, let us purify ourselves as He is pure. You know, the present tense verb there speaks out of it being as an ongoing and a persistent and a progressive thing. Purifying. But, but what makes John's statement excel so profoundly is its connection to Christ. Purify ourselves as He is pure. That's Christ. The pattern is obvious to us. 
to more and more grow up into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fullness and the stature of Christ unto a mature man means greater consecration of life to Christ. That's what Paul prays for. That's what he aims for. That's what he preaches for. That's what he desires. So we have the perfection of the Christian life before us. Here's our call. It's never going to change. Aiming at increasing. Aiming at increasing. That's what he would have us do. Aiming at increasing in faith. Aiming at increasing in love. Aiming at increasing in holiness. And as you hear that, it's unwavering. It's unyielding. It's unambiguous. It's immovable. It's non-negotiable. It's firm. It's solid. It's understandable. But I bet you think, like I do this morning, is it possible? Is it possible? And on one hand, this morning, I'm quite ready to borrow from the language of the Heidelberg Catechism what I quoted a moment ago. No. There's some bad news, in a sense. I mentioned about that gratitude part of the Heidelberg. Question 114, after expounds the whole law, says, uh, Can uh, those who are converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? We have one of the most grimly realistic, honest answers in the history of all Reformed literature. No! That's what it says. Can you keep these commandments which we have expounded so articulately and precisely? Can you keep them perfectly? And the answer is a resounding, no! And then it goes on to say, even the holiest men of this life have what? You can repeat it from here. Small beginnings of this obedience. Can you do this? No. Certainly not in yourself. And certainly not perfectly. Does that mean all of this is in vain this morning after all? That with one hand we said here is the aim and with the other we took it away? No. Because as the catechism goes on to say, yet so, with earnest purpose, they begin to strive to obey not only some, but all of the commands of God. Believer, the outline for you is clear. The path unfolds before us in light. It's not in the darkness and there's no stumbling in it. It's very clear to us what we're to seek. It's to aim at increase. Aim at increase with all of our might to strive after the model here. And the good news is that Christ has provided a means for us to do that. And that's through the ministry of the Word of Christ to us. That's why we're here this morning. We don't know how the days will unfold before us and what the Lord will provide for a meeting place. But what we do know is this morning we've sat under this word and Christ has been speaking into our hearts and into our ears. And through that we'll be sanctified and built up. His word will go with us as we go. And what Christ would call you to do as you go. As you walk out that door, and you go live in a world that's full of upheaval, take this with you, aiming at increasing in faith, in love, in holiness, with a certain assurance that Christ will be with you and He'll give you His grace. Father, I thank You for Your Word. It's so rich to us.
We thank you for how uh, you minister to us by the power of your Spirit, taking things that are old, even ancient, and making them fresh and new. And here we are today, a day in which we really do need the ministry of the Word in a way that we may not have felt quite so much before. It's easy for us to become distracted in the midst of the fray here, but help us, Lord, to have steadiness of mind as we know what you would have for us, aiming at increasing. Help us to do that. This is the perfect time, Lord, in your providence. The table is set for us to seek that for which you would have us aim. So help us, Lord, as you've ministered your word by your grace and Holy Spirit and through Jesus unto us. Strengthen us now to rise up and go forth, aiming at increase faith, love, and holiness. Hear us for Jesus' sake. Amen.